Hey folks, welcome back to the show, True Glue, baby. Today on the show, I'm talking to Danica Deline. Now, Danica, I hadn't seen her in about, let's just say, five years, and she has grown into something remarkable. This girl is studying her heart out and being super well, energetically, for people around. I just had to talk to her after having a coffee with her. She was so well-spoken. She wants wellness for the majority of us. She wants fairness. She grew up with a household of boys, which I grew up with. We are family, and I hope you enjoy what we talk about. It's quite educational and awesome to hear and awe-inspiring. Get with it, everybody. My, um... Narrativizing mind is very accurate. It's this invisible frame of reference that you carry in your head. Life presents all sorts of adversity, and some adversity doesn't feel like adversity. It's sneaky. Could I um, interview you for my space gas? For my space gas? What the hell is going on here? Thanks for having me around. And I know you're really busy, and I appreciate you giving some time to just, like, hang out and chat. You're welcome. I'm super <laughs> excited to do it. <laughs> How are you feeling today? Um, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling good today. Anxious? Pardon me? Anxious? A little anxious, for sure. Do you want to do five breaths? Yeah. Real quick. <laughs> you do. Through the nose and out the mouth. Through the nose. Three more. Letting go of the muscles you're holding on to. One more breath. So did you study today? Um, no, today was a work day. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I work on Ottawa time. So seven in the morning is my start time. And then I go right till three. What kind of work? Um, I'm an intern for the UNHCR. What is that? Uh, it's the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. Whoa. How did you get into that? Um, so I was in a course last semester um, on global, uh, global forced migration, um, which relates a lot to like refugeehood. Um, did you pick that course? I did, yeah. Um, so that's one of my focuses is international relations, specifically with forced migration. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had a professor who, um, in his day worked with the UNHCR for a couple decades, um, and then gradually moved into academia. So then he actually recommended me for the internship and asked if I wanted it. So, hmm. so in that course where your teachers, um, teaching you, there's a spot available for people that want to get involved in the same way that he did. Um, sort of. So he has, there's a partnership between... Like U that inter internship. Yeah. yeah. So there's a, there's a partnership between UNHCR Canada, the Canada branch, um, and the university I attend, Carleton University. And so he's kind of the facilitator of it because he's, I guess, um, an, a, I don't know what you'd call it, an alumni from that organization. Yeah. What's an al alumni? Is like a master or a... He just, he used to, I don't know what you would call it. He just used to work for them, an ex-employee, em ex I guess. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, he's kind of like the facilitator for that. And then he gets to recommend uh, students 
And yeah, I think it happens once a year. So being from the Canada branch compared to this is UN, like United Nations. So that's trying to be more like, is there a country outside of th this like that isn't joining this collaboration? The UNSCR. HCR. HCR. Yeah. Um, yeah. So not every country in the world to begin with is a signatory state for the United Nations. Um, but then in terms of the UNHCR, it was developed and it's just a, an agency of the UN. So kind of like a branch. Yeah. Um, it was developed in the fifties. And so, uh, yeah, not every state is, I guess, um, a participant. Do you know what started it? Um, yeah. So it had to do with like refugees coming out of, um, like, world war conflicts and things like that um yeah. just people being displaced from there it was just a big origin. group do you know if like a country itself started that or was it the whole well someone must have come up with the idea right and then pitched it to the un um yeah i don't actually i don't know that origin um like that i don't know what that specifically um but yeah the united nations someone created would, this branch <laughs> someone would claim it like russia claims they made hockey and it's like dude we played hockey first in canada obviously do you know who started hockey actually um i don't the origins are contested but apparently it is a canadian sport yeah who really knows mm -hmm. what do they do in the canadian branch compared to so you would like your teacher was involved in the canadian branch and maybe well you're working with the canadian branch as an intern mm -hmm. what is that responsible f for mm -hmm. um so it's <laughs> It's a big, complicated organization. So my professor, he did, um, I know he did field work. So he was a resettlement officer um, in different parts of the global south. Um, but then the Canadian branch, basically, <laughs> we're, we're considered a, a resettlement country in Canada. So we're a third country. So when um, people are displaced out of their country of origin, uh, they end up in what is referred to as a host state. So they cross that border. Usually they'll cross a the border. There are internally. The Canadian border? Mm -mm, any border. So um, let's take a very popular example. Very contemporary example would be like um, Syrians. So there was a conflict in Syria. So then a lot of Syrians were displaced. They traveled internationally um, to, you know, Turkey or Jordan, mm -hmm. whatever and it may be. This is mainly within the last, is it like five years? Um, for the Syrian, uh, conflict, it was 2015 was kind of the peak yeah. of it. Um, five years. So yeah, I guess, I guess that Something. is or like, years. yeah, that's not when it started, but that was the peak of it. That's when, um, a lot of different asylum policies kind of came to play. Mm -hmm. Um, and refugees are needing to leave and they would enter any other right. country. Yeah. Would they have informed the... UNH. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you register with the UNHCR as a refugee, um, and then mm -hmm. you're provided in, in that way, you're prov then provided protection by the organization mm. um, in that host state. So then Canada is um, considered a third country or a resettlement country. So if people are continually being persecuted, even in a host state or the second country that they enter, they can be resettled. To places like Canada or the United States, um, a lot of European countries. Is it a big list? The third world, uh, third um, world countries, third. 
Yeah. Um, Not third. Is it third world countries? Is that the what you classified them as? No, sorry. Um, third countries. We're considered a third country or a resettlement country. Okay. So we're the third country that a person would, a person or a family would yeah. uh, end up in. After and there are a lot available. No, I mean. There's a lot of countries available, but every country decides how many spaces there are for refugees yeah. um, and how many will be resettled. And there's a, a, a ton of different entry points, different ways to enter, um, a lot of different uh, programs that you can go through. But um, resettlement spaces, to begin with, are limited, um, but it's, it's dependent on the country itself to decide how many spaces to provide. Yeah. And so would Canada be a big spaced country? Mm, uh, it's relative. Do you know who I relatively suppose. is the largest? Um, I do know that Germany does resettle quite a few refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, In total or the <clears throat> average flow? Um, I would I would say average flow slash in total, depending on kind of, you know, because like during I peak times of conflict. Frick, yeah, it depends on the conflict time, really. It's yeah. not a... F- flowing constant kind of industry although it might be sort of constant totally Mm. it is constant um but there are obviously and i think being in the global north we hear about very like kind of high profile conflicts like i think we've all heard about like the syrian conflict um right now a lot of venezuelans are being displaced um but those are conflicts that 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 we're aware of you're saying global south and global north and Mm -hmm. Is this hemispheres or the equator line? Um, yeah, so I guess it would be geographical, but it's also kind of... Syria, global north? No, Syria would be considered... Um, but it is in the south. northern hemisphere. Yeah, yeah so okay. I guess, I mean, it, it kind of requires some nuancing, I suppose, but um, the global south is just another way of maybe referring to like what people would consider like developing countries or some people refer to as third world countries mm. um and that i think is kind of all these terms are broad yes. and it doesn't necessarily refer to development or how in the west or in the global north we consider development ourselves mm. i think being a canadian is kind of broad too because uh, yeah. we're all crazy descents yeah right? totally yeah. yeah i'm canadian or people might identify as whatever they want uh mm-hmm. german irish and it's like but you're from canada mm-hmm. it's kind of all debatable yeah I'm from a third world country i'm from a third country mm-hmm. <laughs> that accepts refugees <clears throat> but so it's in your establishment that they came up with kind of global north and south or is this a, a pol- polit- <laughs> political <laughs> phrase that people are using more often yeah i think um I don't know who coined the the saying of global north and global north and global south. <laughs> um, I know that I mean in academia, it's kind of the language that's used a lot. Or developing country, third, yeah, third world is not uh, not as often used. I don't think in like an academic context, but I, mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, as an intern, intern now, mm-hmm. what are you doing for the Canada side of this? Um. So I work with the Durable Solutions Unit, um, and so basically the Durable Solutions Unit um, deals with, there's kind of like three um, three kind of ways, three durable solutions. So when someone is a refugee or a displaced person or a person of concern, um, the three options are um, voluntary repatriation. So that's when an individual voluntarily goes back to their country of origin. 
um, maybe the conflict is over, maybe the, their persecution, they wouldn't be persecuted if they returned, but it's voluntary. Um, the second would be local integration. So UNHCR maybe supports um, integration into the host state. Mm-hmm. Or the third option is resettlement. So that's what the Durable Solutions Unit kind of deals with. Um, but in a Canadian context, it often is dealing with resettlement into Canada and how to support refugees or persons of concern when they do come to Canada. Um, so that might be just like housing and access to different resources, um, even just like helping along the process, dealing with like um, the Canadian government and all the various other kind of like actors that all these hoops and bounds that people have to go through. Yeah. And as an intern, are you working up to like the people above you or who have been doing it longer um, have all the experience or are stepping stones learning how to provide for people within Canada and then you're learning their ways? Are you actually making some decisions right now about where what people are doing? Or? No, I, I don't make decisions, no. Um, I'm not a resettlement officer, and um, I don't work for... How do you become a resettlement officer? Um, I'm not... Is, I'm, is that something you're going to strive for? I don't know. Um, it's really interesting work, and I'm very interested in kind of like the global refugee regime. Um, but in terms of career, I, I don't know where I'll, I still have a year of school left. So I guess we'll see what kind of opens up and maybe another opportunity happens in the fall or something. So we'll see. How many years of school have you done? Um, I did my undergrad degree, my bachelor's degree. Uh, so that was four and a half years. And then I'm just about a full year into my master's degree. So six years (laughs) and the work you would do from the Canada side would you ever deal with um, what people are doing in other areas like uh, Germany people arriving to Germany would they ask for Canada's help or would Canada just run out of work and then people within Canada would relocate to help other people if they are um, the officers that the import officers or the what were they resettlement officers resettlement officers um so germany is also considered um a third country or a resettlement country so basically what happens the process is that um within say like a refugee camp um in a host country the resettlement officers there would identify people who are particularly vulnerable um or at risk of continued persecution perhaps in that country um so a lot of times, uh, folks that are maybe LGBTQ, um, they might be at risk still, whether if they're in a host country or in a refugee camp, just because of prejudice or whatever it may be. Yep. So LGBTQ people might need to be resettled to, um, to a different country. So what will happen is a resettlement officer in those countries, in those host countries, um, and within, like, it's a UNHCR resettlement officer... Within those camps, the refugee camps, um, they might identify someone who is particularly vulnerable or at continued risk, and they'll suggest them or, I guess, um, refer them for resettlement. And then there's this whole process that, you know, a lot of interviews for these people and a lot of cross kind of, I don't want to say examination, but kind of that process. And then they can be approved or not. And yeah. 
And if you're the intern, are you doing some of the paperwork in those processes? Yeah, for Canada. Um, yes. So I'll I'll do yeah paperwork things like that. Um, a lot of a lot of intern work anywhere you go. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's been really interesting to see kind of um, the internal workings and kind of getting to learn about the processes in general. Because before I had a very broad, kind of very general idea of what occurred, but it's interesting to see how it actually works day to day. Do you like how it does work for a refugee who would arrive to... So I'm trying to theorize how this would all go. If you're a Syrian mm -hmm. refugee, and I don't imagine like all the time you would have internet or even know how to navigate life when you need to run or hide mm -hmm. and you escape and you're on a boat and you make it maybe to Canada on a whim and you haven't contacted these people or like maybe coast guards find you first and the coast guards would let uh you know do you like or i'm not even sure if you've heard stories like it um do you like the system in place and do you think it's really respectful the way it's going down obviously it's a work in progress um <laughs> that's like so many loaded and big questions. Um, Love to hear <laughs> big answers. So basically, I mean, to the point of perhaps someone, a refugee from wherever they may be. Um, Who is you, the most refugees at the moment coming to Canada? Uh, coming to Canada? I don't, I don't actually know people that. People would maybe find out where they can go and go closer assuming it's a it's it's pretty complicated i think because most most refugees when they would travel to a you know to a third country and claim asylum so once you end up on um, at a border you can claim asylum yeah and then that offers you protection from that state so i think just by nature of geography um not many there there wouldn't be i mean this is speculation and this is all published kind of statistics that can be looked up but um just by nature of where we're located it would be much more difficult to Cross travel the ocean. exactly um whereas through the kind of mediterranean routes there's a lot more people i would imagine that yeah and i know that there are a lot of people who travel those routes um by boat or whatever it may be um because it's just much closer to places like i guess like jordan and turkey and all those areas yeah. Some are going to like, you know, like Greece or Malta or. Yeah. Yeah. So again, like you were talking about the process and you're learning about it and mm -hmm. you're an intern and finding out how it's all going. And I was wondering like how you felt about the system in place right now. Honestly, like when people arrive, do you think it's all, do you think it's fair? And would you welcome all these people? Would you. Do you have any thoughts on, would you continue the work or do you find the work maybe gross or, or <laughs> satisfying? I think the work is important. Um, and I think that because, you know, the UNHCR, um, obviously, you know, you can point out problems with every organization, but um, the UNHCR is so broad and it's so like, it, it expands across so many areas and so many countries that I, I kind of wonder, you know, what would be the alternative to the, this organization? Um, and this is a concept that's dealt with a lot in academia as well, kind of, um, 
I guess, interrogating big organizations and their purpose and their effectiveness. And I think navigating any bureaucracy is tough and you're going to find those kind of those areas where that maybe feel as if they're um, lacking, I guess. But yeah, um, it's really hard to have a massive umbrella over everybody mm -hmm. and everybody to like the color of it underneath. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Same. But um, I think the work is really important. Uh, and I, yeah. I, it's hard to imagine, I suppose, an, al an alternative kind of, you know, like people need, people are in need of international protection. And so how do you navigate that? Mm -hmm. I guess. Do you know, like, you don't see anywhere it can be improved right now? Yeah. I mean, probably, but, um, I don't know. I don't know. I can't figure it out yet. It's like, do you have a solution to lowering the carbon footprint in this town? <laughs> no, exactly. Like I have some ideas, but then taking the step forward with confidence to not get bombarded by people along the way. Um, the, the people who disagree will, you'll hear from the most and there'll be more people you kind of agree from. It's hard mm -hmm. to make big movements and you need a lot of confidence. Yeah. And I mean, it's it, the thing is that, I mean, small improvements happen every day, all day in organizations, right? We're always kind of identifying areas that maybe we could be doing something different. And I mean, I say this, I say this very humbly because I am an intern and I do intern work. Um, having said that, yeah, like the, the unit that I work with, they're amazing and super open to my ideas and stuff. But um, small and gradual kind of improvements, I think, happen all the time. Yeah. And you started, you started this intern work because you got offered it from your teacher. Were you, were you fascinated already kind of thing and um, knew that your teacher had done it and you are on the pathway that you are most interested in? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's interesting. When I was doing my undergrad degree, um, my focus was much more so on like the settler states relations with um, indigenous people and First Nations, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And then going into my graduate degree, um, I just took kind of courses of interest um, that like international relations courses. And this was one of them. So it really piqued my interest. And I felt really, really fortunate that I was kind of offered this spot. And yeah, it's definitely um, an area of focus for me now, which is kind of different. It's different than what I did in my undergrad, which is really interesting. Yeah. it's a. Do you think it's like a nice step forward and you feel like you're kind of being rewarded for the work you've been doing? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that might be it. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, I was never told the criteria as to why I was recommended. So hmm. I imagine I did something right. <laughs> yeah, because, well, how many people didn't get the spot? Or, like, I don't, I don't 99%? know. 99%? In theory, um, every other person didn't get the spot right? because there's one. So, uh, but I don't know. You're special. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, but no. Um, so, what kind of other, did you do other intern work before this in your undergrad? Um, in my undergrad, I didn't do intern work, mm -hmm. but I was a research assistant um, for one of my professors. Uh, what yeah. was that project? 
The project, um, he was doing a project about um, indigenous homelessness. Is that what I call it? A project? Yep. It was. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was a research project. Um, I believe maybe it was a book or a journal or journal article or something i can't remember he was producing some type of academia and this is um you you're paying for education and your teacher uh that is doing this study or you got invited to this study mm, so for him for that one in particular um he had a different research project the summer before and that was like a by application kind of thing you applied for this position because it's a job um and I didn't get that one. And then that next fall, he um, approached me with an offer for this research assistantship. So, you seem um, to be getting approached with nice opportunities. Uh, they were definitely nice opportunities, mm. and in I, I would say that I can attribute that to um, when I did my undergrad at ULEF. Um, it's a smaller department, and so you kind of get to know your professors on a more uh, intimate level, like you just know them personally, and you have mostly the same professors for a lot of different courses. So you get to know each other. And so I think you don't get lost in that sense in like the pool of students because it's a smaller department. Yeah. So that's potentially, you know, we, he knew who I was rather than just kind of drawing random names out of all these students that he has, I suppose. Yeah. And but there is a lot of other students who would have done great for those positions too. Yeah. And especially, well, I noticed with humans, um, just as a general note, if you get a, elected or being told like, we need you to do and it will fulfill, um, people can like learn how to do and be the best for that position. Mm -hmm. um, just opportunities where someone's like, we have an opening slot for a festival for you. And I'm, and, uh, when I got that opportunity, I shaped myself to be the best for that, mm -hmm. as opposed to before working as a club DJ or something. Totally. But what kind of, what was the the summary of the research that you did with that um, department host? Or um, Yeah, so my professor was doing a project about um, indigenous homelessness and housing, like federal housing policies. And he was doing it all the way back until I think it was the 1950s kind of thing. Like he was just kind of reviewing federal housing policy for indigenous people on reserve um, in specific, but also off reserve, I believe. How did he come up with that topic? Um, he has engaged with kind of social policy um, for the most of his career, I believe. And so part of that, I suppose, was, you know, Indigenous relations with Canadian social policy. And, um, you know, the, I mean, that's a huge, huge topic as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of it has to do with, yeah, I guess just the way that the Indian Act dictates um, federal housing policy for reserves and things like that. But so he's looking back until um, as far as he can in research that is publicly available. Yeah. Or at um, the university. Yeah. Uh, so I guess federal housing policy, most yeah, it would be publicly available. Mm -hmm. And then I mean, he had a lot of he had a lot of other like theorizing and things that went into it, of course. But um, yeah, that work for me was pretty basic. It was I just had to kind of go back. Uh, and actually read, um, it was Globe and Mail articles, like news articles. Yeah. So what I was doing was mostly transcribing, um, 
mention of federal housing policy in the Globe and Mail. So, um, from twenty fifteen or whenever you were at school, or the nineteen fifties stuff. Um, it was like nineteen fifties up until I think it was twenty eleven or something. The like Globe that. and Mail is what you were reading in I the nineteen like sixties and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure it was the Globe and Mail. That feels yeah. That feels like it was one news source, and I believe it was that one. And so did you have a, like, you were just summarizing what you had read and what the policy was and how it had changed um, to understand how it had changed for the better or to maybe push motion to in- make a better policy for this would be your teacher's motivations? What um, was the motivation of the study? Or is it just right. do a study? <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, those are questions I suppose I I did not ask him. Um Generally, I would say, I don't think his, I mean, he has presented to different, you know, uh, bodies and, you know, proposed things about different policies and talked about different policies on those kind of levels. But for this one in particular, um, yeah, basically I would just kind of go back and I would find, you know, small snippets or whatever of these big articles that would refer to housing policy or a lot of times um, it was also important to kind of to kind of gather discourse so maybe what reactions to housing policy was and so that kind of forms the discourse of the day and you can kind of see how it's changed or how it maybe hasn't changed but um, I was only there for a I had a contract and then I was never there to we didn't finish the project together, yes. basically. Like, I wasn't there for the end product, so... Did you ever look into how that went? Or what was the end result in this study? Um, I actually... I don't know if it's ended, to be honest. Um, okay. I think that this study is... It's kind of always ongoing, too. Um, mm-hmm. Because new information comes up, or new ideas, whatever it may be. So who's needing this information? Oh. Like... That's a really great question. Um, I think that's kind of the question that all academics ask. Um, mm-hmm. Who needs this? So, As an academic, are you trying to make it so more, the more people that need it is why you create it? Or is it just creating? It's, this person, by the sounds of things, is then going to create something and it's forever needing uh, more research. Mm-hmm. So it's just a forever project of someone just rinsing the information from all around and writing their own theory on it. And then, then what, like, how do you wake up in the morning and do that? Um, <laughs> this is like a skill there, testing question. There must be a goal. Um, yeah. And I think for, for everyone who is involved with academia, that goal is different. So, um, some people I suppose would just right to contribute to a broader scholarship um perhaps some people are doing or maybe they're um contracted to do different research projects for you know different branches of government or whatever that different organizations mm-hmm. um so there might be that kind of end goal but a lot of a lot of academia does it contributes to the broader scholarship and broader understanding of hyper specific Things? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I was just hoping to get some of that motivation of how this person gets the energy to make such a broad project and then be able to take people on. Mm-hmm. And did you feel sad? Like, how did your motivation was just to, Im- how do you impress or how do you get grades under your job? 
Right. So this one, I, I wasn't graded on this. Um, it was just a job. It was a research assistantship. That's what it was. Um, so I didn't get graded on this. It was just that. But I guess when you're talking about, like, how do you wake up and find energy to, like... No, how did you... What was it that you were looking for? You were just looking for the re the actual results of how people reacted to housing... Um, the changes in policies and then just gathering that and then that's it and being and then the man's like hey good job <laughs> yeah you've i done, mean you've done good and then you're like i am good i mean i mean what i did contributed obviously to the broader picture of what he needed you know that end kind of the like that thesis he needed yes. to prove yeah but um yeah basically it was it was just a job that was just my task so and it was interesting like you got to i got to learn a lot and that had helped me in other areas of my own school, right? Like uh, writing papers or doing my own research. But um, yeah, for that particular instance, it was it was a task that I had to accomplish for a job and I did and it was really interesting. Cash money. Yep, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you said you are doing your own research? Yeah, you, I mean, you're always doing your own research, I guess. What are you researching at the moment? At the very, at this moment, um, passionate about researching something at the moment. Yeah. So just generally, I'm pretty into international relations, specifically on forced migration and the global refugee regime. So it ties really nicely into my internship. And, um, I had the opportunity to do some research about, um, kind of like the, <laughs> like the. The theory, it's kind of, it's very theory based, I guess, very like theoretical in nature, but, um, so sort of abstract and I don't know, but, um, so the concept of the, I did just write about like the externalization of European Union asylum policy following the 2015 refugee crisis. So this is, did they make a policy that is saying the European Union does not need to have refugees? Is that? Um, or is there a general feeling that they are trying to put that into play? Can you explain that topic? Sure. Um, so the European Union is kind of like an intergovernmental uh, organization and basically... Started after the war to bring peace to Europe? Um... Didn't they start it after World War One or two? They started the European Union to gather everybody together to stop fighting. I hope we're not messing this up. Like, I don't, look this I, up for yourself. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah, I was gonna say I don't want to. I don't want to definitively say how the EU started, but um, basically in 2015, at the kind of like the peak of the, it was termed the refugee crisis or the migrant crisis. I remember it. Yeah, yeah. And people were being turned away as well. Yes, they were. So so basically the European Union, you know, kind of gave their broad direction for each member state. Um, but having said that, each member state could implement their own actual border policy and securitize their own borders um, dependent on what they chose to do. So um, it was very different across all different member states of the EU. So yeah. it varied pretty widely. Yep. Um, and... Uh, not that it was, I don't know if I would say burden, but that's the language used. But um, there was big discussions about how Greece was bearing a lot of the burden because they're, you know, right across that Mediterranean, Mediterranean pathway um, or route. So a lot of individuals were migrating there 
and ending up um, claiming asylum in Greece and areas like that right along the Mediterranean. So then it kind of, a lot of the EU discussions became kind of, you know, about um, air quotation, burden sharing and how they might address that. But um, my, my research focused on, I use research lightly also, they're yeah. considered research essays, but not original research. This is kind of just like gathering other research and putting it together for my own thesis. But um, but I kind of theorized about, you know, like the the conceptualizations of, you know, which refugees were deserving of aid um, from the perspective of, you know, the global north. And a lot of times it was those who who waited. So there's this really great piece by Jennifer Heineman and Winona Giles called Waiting for What? And so they, in this t- article, talk about um, kind of the perceptions of refugees who wait in re- maybe like host countries or refugee countries, and the perception is that they're deserving of aid, whereas as soon as refugees um, kind of start performing agency and moving to find solutions for themselves, then they are in that process masculinized and conceptualized as security threats or border threats. So it just kind of depends on, it really depended on the country itself and what their policy was, what policy they developed. But um, so yeah, that was kind of very broadly what I got to do recently, which was interesting. um, When you say got to do, you had the opportunity or the idea came to you? Yeah. So the idea, I guess, in conversations with, this was just a, like a term essay kind of thing for my, for my professor. Um, so this was for grades. Um, but yeah, so basically it was kind of along those lines and you just have conversations with your professor and you kind of come up with a thesis and then you try and prove that. Do you think the, the grades grading system, like wouldn't be biased coming from one professor or that totally depends, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, every single person holds biases. Yes. So uh, I don't know that there is like totally bias-free <laughs> grading, but I would say that a lot of university professors do a really great job at being aware of their own biases and not allowing that to kind of maybe hazy their grading processes. Yeah. So if you could research anything yourself right now, like the most interesting thing to you, right now that you would like to learn about do you have anything on your mind um sort of yeah so next year i i get to so part of a master's program is there's a few different routes you can take um you can do course-based which is just you take whatever courses interest you and that's the entire kind of bulk of your degree um you can do a thesis which is um this big project kind of thing um and then I'm doing, or it's called a major research project. So it's your own research project, but it's not necessarily original research in the sense of I don't have, I will unlikely have to conduct like interviews and do that primary research. But um, you do get to pick your own topic for that and you propose it to supervisors and whatever. Um, so I don't have it entirely narrowed down, but that topic. Yeah. Yeah. But broadly, um, I am interested in kind of like, Canadian policy responses to the 2015 refugee crisis and perhaps how it also intertwined or perhaps how like Canadian like uh, like narratives amongst like the public maybe 
contributed to the policy or yeah. what their the reactions were. And now fast forwarding to 2021, mm-hmm. do you think there's what refugee crises would be happening now? Are you aware? Um, yeah, and I mean this is all this is all public and published um, information as well. So um, the Venezuela in Venezuela, there's a lot of uh, people being displaced right now. Um, uh, I think Syria continues to produce the most re- uh, very high numbers of refugees. Um, Do you think it's the the most like necessary topic for you to be in right now or do you see um like a more valuable issue from the canadian policies or from aboriginal rights like locally or do Mm -hmm. you think um i guess there's a battle between like fixing what we got going on here and maybe oh god a horrible way would just be like yeah no let's not take anyone else and like let's fix ourselves yeah i think that both are like you know domestic and international first of all they're they're so intertwined but also i think they're both so important that i don't think um i don't think it's necessarily a conversation of what should what should precede others or you know what should be valued as more important or not but yeah. i think there's obviously spaces for all of this these conversations to be happening and in terms of like yeah so are you very confident after your education that you have something you would like to change? Well, one thing. <laughs> um, no, not one thing. And I don't mean yourself, but yeah. some sort of goal that you want this education for? Um, honestly, no. I, I think what I've been doing, and I feel really fortunate to be able to do it, is kind of just following the passions or whatever you want, like to call them as they come. So I don't have a, and I mean, maybe this is a little too loosey-goosey of me, but I don't have like a specific career in mind or a hyper-specific like personal goal with it. I think it's just something I'm interested in, something I'm passionate about. So I feel very fortunate to get to pursue it in this way. Why do you think you're passionate about it? Why do you think you're passionate about studying for like generally equal rights for people or a loving space or a safe space for people? Why do you think you take that as your study as opposed to designing engines or? <laughs> um, I don't know. I think. Electroshock therapy. Electroshock therapy. I mean, it, who knows? That might be my passion down the road, right? <laughs> we don't know. Um, We're ladies into these days. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what my one kind of response to that would be. I think um, moving away and getting to engage with all these topics through academia has been super humbling. Um, so you found that the topics just showed up and you are, you're just willing to take them? Or do you find that you yourself like thought, you know, that does sound like a good idea? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a fine balance, I think, between um, recognizing kind of the ways that I'm fortunate enough to even engage with these topics being, you know, um, being from Canada and being able to go to university and and engage with this. And, you know, there's a, a specific, um, I guess, privilege in even being able to study other countries, um, you know, and I think it's important to consistently remind yourself of that um, while also engaging with things like 
you know, Canadian federal policy for displaced persons or just in general for whatever it it may be that you're interested in. This just happens to be something I'm interested in, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, I had an amazing professor last semester who um, was so engaging and was so um, kind in his delivery and was so humble in his delivery and always kind of recognizing these ways that he was even, I guess, engaging in, I don't know how to explain that really, but um, yeah, I just, he was an amazing professor. And do you think potentially it's your upbringing and having a, a fair kind of lovely home and support system coming from a beautiful small town where well also you can't get away with anything and people in general look out for the best of you and maybe wanting if you you must have heard and it's awful coming from we're growing up in this society and we learn what is awful for us like when the tv gets shut up shut off and then we grow up and we think a bit and someone tells us like yeah people in syria need to leave their entire lives or you know a ton of stuff and you hear this and you look at your own life and you see how fortunate you've been and you how much energy you have to be able to well you want to look into it further maybe i'm just summarizing maybe why those reactions could have happened with you yeah i think that's you kind of touched on a really important point is that like we are very privileged to be able to Um, learn about these conflicts and learn about these concepts rather than living them ourselves. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a very specific position of privilege that we, that we have being here and being from Canada. And that's something that I think is really important to consistently remind myself of, especially engaging in these topics and, you know, um, ensuring that I'm engaging with them in as ethical forms as I possibly can. And I think that's really important for academics generally. And I think maybe what drew me to this professor was that he did that. Um, and yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, yeah, it's tough to say. Got me thinking. So, you know, when you're sick and you never chose to be right, there's a bug inside of you and it's infected you and you're floored to the bed and someone in their own power, um, with their own time, sees you being weak and sick and brings you something and Mm -hmm. how you are out of power and can't think and are unsure what to do. And it's amazing that we are humans and we have love for each other. And it's obviously probably to keep us going as a race. Um, But being conscious that conscious and knowing we're fortunate where we are and like you said not being in the situations that we're we are scared because we can't think when we're scared and potentially maybe you share enough love for the people on the planet that when people we hear they're scared and running you have enough conscious time to help the sick people from afar with your time you know when someone reaches out to you in a nice way when you are literally sick on a bed as opposed to a country and a whole bunch of people Mm -hmm. that need help and you know that you're better off than them and you give you don't just say that's their problem i don't Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i don't need to yeah (laughs) you're sick on the ground yeah peace i'm gonna go to the bar Mm -hmm. (laughs) or i'm gonna go to disneyland Mm -hmm. it's like a bunch of people are unfortunately not in a 
as good of a place and we do we're consciously not being chased and can think that like well we could help that situation that's where my empathy would come from for people that are needing to run or Mm -hmm. don't know what to do or just need help like if i'm all good definitely let's have some refugees around and help them out like what more do i need yeah i suppose that's kind of the whole theory behind like international community and international protection one love you would hope right yeah i would i would say so (laughs) Hmm. Mm -hmm. so what was one of the first topics that you started really studying or do you think it was a feeling that you wanted to study because you weren't going this direction like uh when you were 10 15 right 20 (laughs) what what was one of the first topics that got you moving this direction um so when i decided to go to post-secondary um i actually went into criminology and criminal justice i had no real plan um i think i just felt like i needed to go to college so when when you did the criminology Mm -hmm. did this count towards maybe you did a year um uh, then maybe you switched your topics and that that's included in the four years that you did for your um, minor or bachelor, sorry. Yeah. 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 So, oh my, yeah, I went to um, a different college and then I transferred over to a university. How did you pick criminology? Um, You know what? I did not really think about it. I don't think um, I knew I wanted, I felt like I needed to go to college. So I, and I knew I wanted to, I just felt like I needed direction. Um, And I chose, uh, you know, the Okanagan. So I kind Mm -hmm. of looked at the programs there and just chose it. It was honestly quite random, Um, but it was it looked interesting. Right. Like I got to take like some psychology courses, some criminology courses. And then evidently I took political science. Um, It was just one of the required courses. And I had a instructor that um, he was kind of uh, he was hard, I guess. Mm -hmm. And in some kind of odd, strange, twisted way that motivated me, I guess. Wow. Um, so then I transferred into political science and it's just kind of, you get, you get to be exposed to so many different subfields of political science. And I think that's what I really loved about it. There's just so much, it's so broad, it's fast and you know, it's, it's fast. <laughs> it is. It is. I guess. I, maybe vast isn't the right word, but broad. So. Oh, did you say vast or fast? Vast. Yeah, I thought you said fast. <laughs> it's fast moving. It's, it's really motoring. <laughs> How much time do we have? Um. Yeah, like fifteen. Perfect. Time. And. Yeah. So you were talking about did that teacher? Did you get a chance to talk to that teacher and then it kind of more solidified you wanting to dive into that direction? Like, obviously, it's your teacher. You're probably talking about topics. Or did you actually be like, hey, I love what you're up to. And did you know I'm going to probably, like, drop what I'm doing on this side of things and go way into, like, what you're doing? Because you were hard on me. And um, I want to get first, better at that. Or My first year instructor, you mean? Yeah. Um, the political science first year instructor that yeah. was hard. No, I was, I guess I was, uh, I don't want to say resentful, but I was kind of, I, I definitely thought he was, I mean, for lack of a better term, I was like, you're kind of mean, <laughs> so, <laughs> truly. So, um, but that made you, that pushed you uh, in a, yeah, in a weird way. And this is not me justifying being mean to people to push them. That is not what I'm saying yeah. by any, in any form. Um, 
but he did, I mean, obviously, you know, just what we got to learn was so interesting and so new to me. And so that, I guess, um, in addition to all the other courses I got to take, political science just felt like the natural route or the proper route. So yeah, I transferred into it. <laughs> and I was trying to figure out how... Me neither. How I don't you, know. Like, I love to think way deep and find out the... Is it psychology or is it, at that point... Um, theorizing like how people get their root desires or where they yeah, I'm trying to figure out how we act yeah I don't know um I always felt maybe like <laughs> this is so bad um he was just fine and he was great like he was very smart he was very intelligent and he knew what he was talking about but almost I think condescending in a way mm. and um yeah, I know that that entire year I spent kind of, like, trying to prove myself. To who? To him. Oh, yeah. For no reason. Because what because would that matter? Because he was condescending. <laughs> Almost. But, I mean, did you have who knows that? what was going on in his life? Did we don't you have know. that from brothers or family? <laughs> that then it's, like, a root desire to show them up? Oof. I mean... Maybe, you know, having three older brothers, there was a lot of times where you had to kind of Oh, like, I forgot. Yeah. Yeah. You have to kind of step up or, or not, I guess. Um, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're... I don't like to think that my choices were like so deep. I just think I was 18, 19 and made mm -hmm. some pretty random choices. I like to choices. look at them. I like to look at it and get look deep to then try to find a, a philosophical answer of like totally. why we might have acted a certain way. Mm -hmm. And I find if you look deep enough it, or, or is it just being creative? I'm just making things up and I'm like, yeah, I totally know why I did what I did. I mean, things have meaning if you give them meaning. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> so I've never given my, my choice to transfer any meaning other than I just wanted to. What are you going to do once you're done your study of six years? Oof. I don't know. Um, maybe find a job, maybe travel, um, maybe do more <laughs> schooling. I don't know. I hope that that doesn't happen right away, but it might feel right. So I guess I'm Aren't you going to change the world? Uh, aren't we all Sounds like going you to? already are. <laughs> <laughs> You've, uh, well, yeah, the reason I wanted to talk to you when we got to talk and I haven't seen you for about, uh, six years and, um, the way you'd been studying and I guess it's like empathy or like enough love to then care so much about the broad spectrum of people mm -hmm. that already you've inspired me. You've made me more optimistic about people on the planet. Like I love that uh, you exist and like I, not that I was optimistic about or not like motivated, but like having people around like you is like a joy. It's like an extra because you just went and you were motivated by yourself to, we don't know why you were motivated <laughs> to educate <laughs> yourself and to make your, like what I believe is like a general macro scale, um, well-being of more people. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure that up. <laughs> I mean, that's cool. Yeah. I guess. And going to school, uh, going to post-secondary, you just, you have the opportunity to be exposed to different things that you might not be otherwise. So Definitely even just learning about different things and bigger concepts kind of thing. Um, I think just in a way naturally motivates people to learn more, you know, be more curious and to be 
um, if you want to be, I guess, be a lifelong learner. So, um, yeah, I think just maybe even just exposure. So I'm glad I just, you know, closed my eyes, randomly picked a program and then I got that out of this. Mm -hmm. Have you ever, um, have you had a notable change from someone like in your life that you've inspired before or have you seen any of like your work that's like come back to you or someone Mm -hmm. has noticed and well, probably some bosses or something have been like, yo, great job, man, I got on that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's okay if you haven't. It's like the achievements part of, I don't know, any resume or something, application. What are your achievements? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a hard, that's a hard one. Um, I don't know, a self, I mean, maybe self-gratification, like knowing Mm. that I accomplished that and knowing that I worked towards you know a degree and then I ended up with it and I mean that's well that's uh, nice but are you do you like being busy like you started with work and you're going to do a second job in between um you probably have school on the odd days filling everything are you running do you like being that busy or do you think you learn when you're less busy um I think I like being busy, definitely. And I think growing up playing sports and in university, even, you know, balancing sports and school, you're always busy. And I think I, I find comfort in it in a, mm. in a strange way. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like rest is super important and super nice and all of that. But um, I really enjoy what I do and I really enjoy the things that I study. So, um you know, we were talking before and when I want to veg out, I completely do and I completely disconnect, but, um, I really enjoy being busy with things that I'm interested in and, uh, yeah, I guess passionate about. So, mm-hmm. so after your studies, you're going to need to stay busy to stay mentally well. Uh, I mean, maybe, or, or maybe, you know, after my studies and after this degree, I realize I just want to work nine to five and then do what I want after five and on the weekends. Mm. And that might happen. No, I don't, I doubt it. I don't foresee that, but, Mm. um, I don't know. I like being busy and then taking breaks. So in the summer, I just like, I work, I serve, but I can also just do what I want. And I don't do any schoolwork in the summer usually. So yeah, maybe that's, you know, kind of a recharge and then, I get to do it all over. <laughs> yeah, so you're not a human that uh, has a super strong desire to enter like some uh, UN and um, have a solid idea that would change. What- I don't know if anyone's like that, really, when you get down to it. There's so much more to people than like we may see someone who does do a massive change in their life. Mm-hmm. But like the way they got there might be just so random. Totally. Like how you got to where you are, I yeah, I think like sometimes it's random. Sometimes, you know, there's very specific routes that people take or very specific um, relationships you have that get you places or whatever it may be. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know that. So Forrest Gump, that's yeah. like <laughs> there's patterns in life, but or is it just all random? And I think it's both. I think it's a healthy mix of both. At yeah. the same time. Totally. Jesus. So who or what are you most grateful for off the top of your dome piece off the top of my dome piece it's okay whatever the answer is Mm -hmm. it's a beautiful question to be asked i asked myself it it is a beautiful question to be asked um 
I am super grateful. Obviously, I think everyone defaults to their parents, but I am super grateful for my parents. Um, they're like so supportive. Um, even in times where like maybe they don't necessarily like agree with what I'm studying or the stances I take or something like that. They're always supportive of the process, which is really lucky. Um, supportive, you know, like emotionally, spiritually, but you know, there was definitely like financial support from my parents, which I am super lucky for. Um, that's not something that everyone kind of has access to. And I recognize that that is very special. Um, and without, you know, without having them support me, I don't think I would have been able to get through a degree. Um, that's a crazy thing that like Canadians and Americans, we may not go be or like get educated enough mm -hmm. to change ourselves and the people around us because it's not financially possible. Yeah. There are mass, there's geniuses that are just poor. Right. And they're yeah. not, they're not in the universities because, well, maybe they never, you know, got the, what is it? Paid tuition or, um, yeah. Like a Scholarships scholarship. or bursaries or whatever it and is. And we're missing the opportunity of those people. Yeah. Well, I'm fortunate. Then your parents help you too. Totally. I feel really fortunate all the time. Um, and, you know, yeah, I think that question just kind of calls into, it just kind of calls into question maybe like the structures in place in our institutions and stuff like that, um, like educational institutions. And, but yeah, I don't know. Um, Do you think it should be free? Probably. It's a big question. It is a big One question. Of the it is. I mean, like on a very surface level, of course I do. Like I think that everyone should have access to it. I think everyone, if you want post secondary education, I think that you should have access to it. And it just is so unfortunate that if a financial barrier is the only barrier, you know, um, like you're emotionally, spiritually, you're so passionate about it, and that's the only barrier. I, I wish that there was perhaps more structures for support. But yeah. Oh my God, that just got me thinking about you could be financially not well, and uh, that can kill you in the United States with or anywhere with no free health care. Mm -hmm. You just uh, you are sick, and that is the only thing necessary for your life, mm -hmm. for life. And with not enough money, you will die. But actually, there's a thought too. These are massive topics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no time for it. They really are. They're huge. The, <laughs> Not having enough money can lead to just a stressful life that does kill you in yeah. a rich society. Yeah. Not having enough to um, do the things you want with your friends or enough to supply enough wellness to your family. And it just makes this feedback loop of making your, you depressed because you're not supplying enough to your your son who you yeah. wish could just play hockey with all the other boys. But they... And, yeah, I mean, and <laughs> I mean, we're kind of... We're talking about, I guess, like the neoliberal just, state, the just, capitalism, but those are holla. too big. <laughs> and we're doing okay in it because we're just mentally all right. In our, like, I think that's all we can ask for, for well-being. Yeah. We can't really... Mm, well, coming from, I guess, a physical and spiritual or mm, emotional side of things, just being emotionally stable enough to be able to sit and talk clearly is healthy it's healthy and it's fortunate we're very fortunate to be mm -hmm. in those positions for sure and we're in this weird bond with money that um we need to go get it every once in a while and like that's probably one of the reasons why you have two jobs to help <laughs> to uh, go to s help 
pay to get yourself to school yeah and like relieve some of the load off of um if the load is bearing on financial support or yeah. it's yeah yourself yeah yeah do you find you have um is social life a large support in your busy like educational side the four years prior social life Totally. Yeah. Um, I thrive on social interaction. I love, yeah, I love my friends and I'm so fortunate to have the Mm. friends I do. I rely on them. um, I rely on them a lot just for like, you know, disconnecting, I suppose, even. And sometimes, sometimes for engaging. When they're Um, good, they're vegging mm -hmm. out. They're like our veg out homies. I'm not saying like pot smoking or maybe they are. If you're an amazing person and you do any sort of drug, good for you. Awesome if that's your thing. But Totally. Um, yeah, I mean, like I have, I think I have a, a, a big variety of people in my life. And so, you know, I have certain friends where we can just sit and like, I don't know, watch watch something, watch a show, watch, yeah. you know, hockey, whatever it may be. But I also have friends where when we get together, we engage in these big topics. And it's that's super fun and that's charging in and of itself. Yeah. Um. And then, you know, I have friends that I strictly see when I'm playing hockey or, and, you know, that's what we talk about. That's what we do together. But, uh, yeah, I think it's just so. Do you still play hockey? Um, I haven't played in over a year. I mean, most people didn't get to play sports this year. Yeah, true. Yeah. But, um, I still. Pandy. Can play, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. The panini. I wasn't sure if you. (laughs) (laughs) We're just like the melting cheese inside of this press. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, in I guess technically I am retired. I am a beer league player now. Yeah. Which is super fun in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. Exercise and the social life. Like, although the majority of what you're doing would be like studying and working, just like having a little bit of a net support system. Yeah. No, you don't even realize like that they're a support system or they're like, you don't put that pressure on it when you go hang out with them. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I mean, I don't think that, um, like I don't put my entire like mental well-being into like relying on my friends or anything, but they just definitely contribute. They contribute so greatly to it. I think it's just like really, you know, like your, your life is just so rich when you have all these people around (laughs) or people you love around. Right. For some people, they don't, they don't need a lot of people around and I wouldn't say I do, but I love the people I do have around. Yeah. So just so we're not in a rush, how much time do you think we have? Or are we going to wrap this up with maybe another question? We can wrap it up with one other question. Sweet. Yeah. I, was, I love trying to come up with what advice could you give to someone who would have been your younger self mm. five years ago? My younger self five years ago. What kind of struggles maybe socially or in socially or uh educationally mm-hmm. in progressing yourself and like what what have you found or what advice could you give to yourself right um i think the advice i would give uh, educationally like <laughs> develop good study habits um and i know that sounds do very do people find them themselves or do you have hints of that i don't i don't know how it happens like truthfully i have bad study habits for the most part um when I, do you think they start or when do you, how do they how do you define them as bad like i guess yeah bad good is going to be relative yep. no matter who you speak to but um 
Uh, I don't even I don't even know how to answer that I guess and you know that's the that's what the answer to my question was or to your question was but um just <laughs> set aside time so I guess you haven't solved this no I have not ago. I you I just haven't. wish you had better study habits this whole time well and you know I think maybe it's that that's just how I work um I I kind of like gradually work and then but like procrastinate sometimes. Like I, I definitely procrastinate. But I wonder if maybe that's just the nature of how people do it when you're engaging with academics. You just procrastinate. The procrastinating, do you think it's the healthy, like natural flow of needing to veg out? Or do you think it's this weird, nervous block of not moving forward because you're scared to or something? Right. Um, for myself, I don't get nervous to, to move forward or anything like that. I think it's maybe just, it's the former. It's the the natural need and desire to veg out. Mm. Right on. So it sounds like <laughs> you're just, I, maybe societal pressures put pressure on totally. to yeah. us. When we veg out, we feel like we're not productive. And that's a big thing from the UK kind of Western mm-hmm. capitalistic mm-hmm. world. When you're not doing something progressive, you're not yeah. doing well. So I think maybe that's my, maybe that's my advice is like, don't put too much pressure on yourself and don't, don't allow that productivity guilt to kind of over, you know, like over, overcome you. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to be anywhere. You are just yeah. great the way you are. Totally. As long as you're not hurting yourself or others. You can just just yeah, and you don't even have to justify it. If you want to just do nothing for Heck, a bit, you do can nothing. hurt yourself a little bit once in a while. I don't mind. I sh- I'm I know I'll get hung over if I have another beer sometimes, and yeah, I do because at the time, I it's it's fine, and I'm with the person I need to connect with more. Or yeah. Or I need that sugar or... Yeah, you can what? indulge, right? I shouldn't don't... have to... You know, what I would say is unhealthy too is maybe binge watching um, a Lord of the Rings series. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's necessary. Mm-hmm. I took a political science course about Lord of the Rings and it was amazing. But that's like a whole other thing. <laughs> awesome. Okay, shalom. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. 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 <laughs>